Well, anyway, we, uh, we're excited about today because uh, we had the opportunity in many ways just to hear from God, but also hear from God's servants. And as we were sharing in the first service, God has called us as God's people to be members of God's family, see us as vitally important to each other. Also, we're called to be ministers in God's church as we use our gifts and talents and abilities to serve him. But also, we're called to be missionaries where we live, to bloom where we're planted. And sometimes God will call us to another place, but as we think about going to another place, it's all about building relationships and sharing the good news of God's love. And so Gary and Kelly, who are serving in Thailand, uh, let's have them come up and give them warm applause as they come, and they're going to share part of their story. So um, I'm Gary, and this is my wife, Kelly Yoon, and um, I am going to do primarily most of the speaking since we only have limited time, but Kelly reserves the right if she's moved by the Spirit to interject something. Okay. <laughs> so um, we have 10 minutes, so I'm going to pray real fast, if you just pray with me. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your goodness in all things. Lord, there is so much that you've shown Kelly and I, and we only have limited time. So bring those things to mind that would be an encouragement, a blessing, and yet a challenge, Lord, to those that are listening here at Grace Hills today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Where do I start? Okay, so we are missionaries serving in northern Thailand in a province called Lampang. Um, Although we're serving in Thailand, we're not Thai. Um, I'm ethnically Korean, a third-generation American, um, my, pa- uh, my great-grandparents came from what's considered North Korea. Back in, before 1910, there was no North Korea, and immigrated to this country. So although I have this Asian facade, I'm mostly American. <laughs> Kelly, although, like, we always call the real Korean, because she actually was raised and grew up in uh, Seoul, Korea, until just before we got married in our early 20s. We are missionaries that just finished serving four years in Thailand. We are not lifetime missionaries. We're probably, for those of you who have never served in the mission field and just just were normal people, I worked for a company, Uh, Kelly was a homemaker, we both served a local church here in the Saddleback Valley for many years, Um, never planned on being missionaries. So never say never. And so a lot of ways you can, you know, you can look at us as what we call initially reluctant missionaries because we didn't want to go at first. And so in many ways... Uh, our missionary experience is the greatest sort of test of obedience in our life. And, you know, in this time of um, Lent, we think about the Lord Jesus and the sacrifice he made. You know, in his earthly ministry, he was the perfect uh, example of obedience to the Father, example for us. And as we read the scriptures over and over, it says how important that obedience is to our Lord for his followers, his children, to follow him, his word, his commandments. And, um, you know, um, we raised three kids. You know, in 2009, we're just about to be empty nesters. And for those of you that have raised children in Southern California on a single income, you know, you're always at a place of being broke. And uh, we were just about to be empty nesters. At that time, we had a son that was in Missionville High School as a junior. We had a junior in university. And we had our daughter who had just graduated, started working. And uh, it wasn't a time to, we thought, to leave our children behind. Well, um, in 2009, the Lord came to my wife, Kelly, in prayer. And she sensed that the Lord was calling her into a greater service, a full-time service. And... Um, 
So she said, Lord, you know, I can't serve you alone, but if you will call my husband, and whatever you call him to do, I will just follow. And so she set to praying for two years, never told me. In 2011, uh, I felt called to go to the country of Thailand on a short-term trip. And uh, it was amazing in 10 days to see the Lord move, answer prayer in a way that I'd never experienced before as a believer. Now, I grew up in a, in a non-Christian uh, home, a uh, very secular home, never went to church. Kelly grew up in a Buddhist home in South Korea. We didn't find the Lord until our early 20s. And, um, you know, when I got back from that initial trip for Thailand, I just thought, okay, well, I did what the Lord wanted me to do. I obeyed, checked the box, and I'll just resume my life, you know, uh, obeying the Lord. Well, you know, he kept on calling. And that same year, we went to India with, a, with our pastor and a small team. When I got back from India, I knew he was calling me into uh, long-term missions in Thailand. Now, I remember the day in the fall of 2011. I was in my office overlooking the parking lot, lost in thought. And I was speaking to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I know what you're asking me to do, and I don't want to do it. You know... Uh, you know, when you're going to become an empty nester, you know, we hadn't saved for retirement, so I was going to work diligently over the ensuing years to save for retirement and just come alongside the local church like we had. You know, that was my plan. But the Lord had a different plan. He overtly called, us, called me to go to Thailand. And so as I said no, the Lord starts to recall all the things that he did for me. You know, when I married my wife all those years ago, she spoke no English, and I spoke no Korean. And we married after meeting after five months in Korea. Now, for those of you that think that the secret of uh, any relationship is communication, well, it wasn't in our case. <laughs> There's some advantage not speaking the same language. Um, but, uh, you know, he done so many things for us. And so I sensed the Lord was saying, you know, I did all this for you. I answered prayer. And now I'm asking you to do this one thing, and you don't want to do it, okay? And all of these things that we learn about obedience from the Bible, you know, it's better to obey than sacrifice. In John chapter 14, it talks about, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And it almost says, if you don't love me, you won't, you know, if you don't obey me, you don't love me, right? And I knew that one day I'm going to come face to face with our Lord Jesus, and he's going to ask me, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? At that point, there's not going to be any excuses. There's not going to be any do-overs. There's nothing to say. So not wanting any regrets, the first thing I said to the Lord was, what about our children? And he said, who's a better father, you or me? Well, I still had to take that on faith because I didn't know how that was going to turn out. And I said, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm weeping now in my office. And I said, Lord, if you'll help me sidestep the desires of my flesh, if you just help me sidestep because I don't want to do it, I want to serve you, I'll do it. So we applied to OMF, our missions organization, and we literally sold our house. We got rid of all our stuff um, and reduced everything down to 12 boxes and put it in storage. And we went, you know. And, you know, um, there is a blessing in obedience, but yet, you know, the greater the obedience, the larger the price that needs to be paid.
And when Abraham paid the price of obedience, we know that God was going to bless Abraham through him, bless all the people of the world. And that's something we're still living out today. His family was blessed, his family's family was blessed, and now we get to be blessed through that. Well, uh, you know, serving in Thailand, growing up in Mission Viejo, Mission Viejo was the first master plan community in all of the United States. You know, and anything less than Mission Viejo, where I grew up, it's third world. And Thailand is not Mission Viejo. And I, you know, we struggle. It was really hard. Who's tried to learn a foreign language after 50? Anything is hard after 50 to learn. And we were given, uh, we weren't given the uh, linguistic gift. We keep on praying even now for an Acts chapter 2 event, but God hasn't answered that yet. But I would say after four years of, of just struggling, sacrificing not being able to see our children, uh, not, you know, sort of relinquishing the life that we loved here for the Lord, the things that we found were a closer relationship to the Lord, a greater sense of the Lord's, you know, being here, greater faith, greater trust. And as we look back, God certainly was a better father and mother to our children. They never gave us cause for us to come off the field. We, each one of them, uh, take ownership of their own faith in the Lord, make great decisions. And, um, you know, part of that was, I think, the plan for them, uh, for, for them to rely on the Lord. And I think the greatest lesson, which I didn't share first, but I, I, I just realized this now, the greatest lesson that I learned from the Lord was God doesn't care about what we do for him as much as he cares is how do we define who we are in his son Christ? Because without def- our definition of who we are in Christ, we can't do anything. We have to rely on him to save the Thai people. We're not going to save the Thai people on our own. And so um, that's the greatest, I think, thing that we learned while we were there. We, would, so we love Grace Hills, uh, that you have a mission's heart to reach out to, to the lost, either here or overseas. Uh, we love that you pray for us and you, for your financial giving because we couldn't do it without you. Um, if you feel moved by anything that I've said today, We'd love it if you would sign up for our prayer letter that you would pray for us. Um, if we run out of space, please turn it over and start, start on the back. If you do sign up, please take a prayer card. And also, um, we have a gift. It's a little elephant keychain that's manufactured by the clay that's mined in our province. And in Thailand, elephants are a very sacred um, animal. Um, and as elephants don't forget, please don't forget about to pray for the Thai people. Uh, for their salvation and also for us. Thank you very much. Great challenges uh, in those words from Gary, and Kelly wrote all those things for him to say, so uh, we're excited about that as well. Uh, but you think about that, God is calling all of us uh, to know him and then to make him known. He's calling all of us to use our gifts and abilities for his sake and for his glory. And as we think about um, even the theme, if we broaden the definition of missionary to the point of, of being a spokesman for Jesus Christ, he wants us to be a missionary here, and then if God calls us to be a missionary there. And so take those words and realize that sometimes 
Uh, we say no to God when we uh, don't want to walk across the street and strike up a conversation with a neighbor or to spend time talking with somebody at work about spiritual things. And, and that's what God wants us to be. And it's not always comfortable. And maybe we don't think we speak their language. Maybe we know English, but we don't really speak maybe what uh, we think is going to be engaging to them. But God just wants us to be faithful, uh, as, as Gary was sharing. You know, in, in Philippians 2.8, which is our verse for the month, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so as we think about this season, it's all about being obedient to the things that God has plainly told us to be and to do. And it really does come from a realizing not who we are in the flesh, but whose we are in the spirit with Jesus Christ. We identify with Jesus Christ. Uh, let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for just the opportunity and the moments we have now just to, to take what we've already heard and just allow that to settle in our spirit as far as what is it you have now challenged us to be more faithful uh, with or to. Help us to be obedient, to, to represent you well in a world that so desperately needs you. And Father, help us to be faithful. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the little book of Titus, and if you're not sure where that is, you can look up in the table of contents, but you find the last book, Revelation, hanging left, and when you get to the T books, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, uh, Titus is the one that, that finishes those T books off. And, and really, this is a series in which we've been looking at what, what is the... What is the template for the church? What is the pattern? What is the blueprint? How does God want us to live our lives out, not only individually, but maybe even more importantly, how we live it out corporately? Because we we are in this together. And and just think about it. Aren't we glad that that God spoke to us and spoke clearly to us? In fact, he spoke clearly, so clearly to us, he wanted to write it down, you know, and so we had the opportunity, whatever language we know, to be able to, to read it and to reread it and to relook at what he has to say to our lives. And I've always, uh, I've been marked, I've, uh, you know, heard Gary and Kelly's uh, story about getting married and not being able to speak into their lives as far as one new Korean, one new English, and that is a challenge to live out. But even as Gary was sharing, and as I was thinking about them coming today, is that uh, communication is often called the key to marriage, but sometimes not being able to communicate can be a help as well. This is a familiar story, but a couple drove down a country road for several miles, not saying a word. An earlier discussion, so we call it an argument, had been led to them um, being at odds with each other, and so neither of them wanted to concede their position. You ever been in an argument where you wanted to uh, be the one on top, not the one on the bottom in terms of how it all ends? Well, as they passed a barnyard of mules, goats, and pigs, the husband spoke the first word, and he asked sarcastically, relatives of yours? Never ask a question, you know what the answer is going to be. Uh, the, the response was, yes, the wife replied, in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe she did get the last word. I was uh, reading another story about um, there was this, this family, they, they, they got in an argument and, and they were just livid with each other. And so um, here was the, the responses back. Um, the husband, every time I argue with you, you never argue or fight back. How do you manage your anger? Uh, to which uh, the wife replied, I, I clean the bathtub. Well, how does that help? I use your toothbrush. <laughs> so anyway, you can get back at people in a variety of different ways, even though you don't use it verbally. And, and as we think about it, uh, you know, communication can either be that which helps or that which hurts. Would we agree? 
And sometimes we, we think that so strongly, they think, well, if I can't say anything nice, I shouldn't say anything at all. And, and that's often the, the best course of action. But sometimes you need not only maybe not say things that are, aren't so nice um, by not saying anything at all, but, but sometimes you need to speak the truth in love. And, and we're going to see that this morning as we finish off our series in the, in the book of Titus, which really does speak about how do, we, how do we live life together with people in the church as well as uh, outside the church. And he wants us to treat people, and he wants us to treat all people the right way. And we're going to see this as Paul closes his letter, and he often does this as he writes his letters. He gives a lot at the very end, even though he's giving his parting words. They're often parting shots. And we're going to look at the simple thing that we all realize, though we don't always admit. If we're going to treat people right, we need to understand that sometimes that we need to treat people differently. We don't treat everybody the same. Now, we value everybody the same in the sense that we ought to treat everyone like we want them to go to heaven, as we've talked about in recent weeks. Or to put it in more generic terms, we treat everybody with love. But that, will, that love will be expressed verbally or non-verbally in different ways if we really care about what's best for the person. And really, that's what love is. It's seeking someone's best or that which is good for them. And sometimes that won't be always pleasant uh, but it'll be always be right if we're looking for that which is good. And, and what I want to do is just do a quick review as well, this is our last shot in the little book of Titus is, is really this is a letter written to, from Paul to Titus about how, how can you help the churches in Crete be good or be gooder or get to the point where they're the goodest types of churches they can be, not great grammar but great theology, is that he, he spoke very plainly to them. If you're going to have churches that are good, then you got to get leadership right in the church. That the leadership in the church shouldn't be telling people what to do and then acting and living the exact opposite of that. They, they need to be examples to the flock. And so there's qualifications for people being leadership. Not only to lead wisely and well, but to live wisely and to live well. So get leadership right in the church. But then there's a, there's a result for that. What's the desired outcome? If the leadership is right, you can tell how well they're leading by what their people look like. And he said, you need to get God's people right in the church. We ought to be people that see ourselves as members and ministers and missionaries. And we ought to live out our faith in demonstrative ways that show that we, we know who God is and, and we believe that God is good. And so if, if, if God is good, then we ought to act good. And, and then he speaks about we need to see ourselves as reaching out into a community that need to know about our good God. And so let's get Leadership right in the church, get God's people right in the church, and let get, let's get God's people right in the community. And it all re- re- reflects on that God wants us to know that He is good, and so He wants us to live out what is good. And just real quick, there's, there's eight times, at least eight times in the book of Titus, in those three chapters, where He speaks about being good and doing good. He talks about, um, to, to, to begin with, that, that the leaders ought to love that which is good. And then he, he speaks about the exact opposite. He said there are people who profess to know God, but if you're looking at them honestly, they're living out the li- their lives where they, they are worthless in doing any good deed. In fact, that's uh, sometimes how we can describe people. That person is good for what? Nothing. And, and that's a person who doesn't do any good. And, and he goes on and on and on. He says that we ought to uh, promote people being an example of good deeds. We ought to promote people being zealous for good deeds. We ought to be careful to engage in good deeds. We ought to learn to engage in good deeds. We ought to love what is good, teach what is good, and be ready for every good deed. 
And so he's convinced that God's people and God's corporate um, fellowship people ought to be those who are committed to doing that which is good. Not because we want people to think we're so good, but we have a good God. And that's what Jesus said. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your what? Your Father who's in heaven. And, and so as he ends this letter, however, he, he, he does not want to leave them in somehow the, the mystical realm of thinking you can always just be nice to people and that's good. Because sometimes you need to speak the truth in love, saying things that the people don't want to hear or responding to them in ways they don't want you to respond because ultimately that is what is good for them. And so this morning in the time we have, I'm gonna, I don't always alliterate my message, but this one has some alliteration. So I've got three words for you. Um, if, we're, if we're treating people well, we'll treat them by um, refusing certain things, rejecting certain things, and refreshing certain people in our lives. So let's look at this morning. So if you have your outline, help you follow along. And we won't go through every cross-reference, but we'll try to put this in a context that, may, context that makes sense. Treat people differently, but always with love. Treat people right by, first of all, refusing. Refusing to debate people who want to argue about what is clear or not important. And where do I get that? It's from what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said in verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And he puts it in terms of categories, but really what he's talking about, he's talking about people. You know, re- refuse to, to engage in things that, that are just going to be controversial and foolish when you describe it after the conversation is over. Don't get caught up in these long debates about genealogies or, or certain minute things about the law which really are not that important. And actually, you can describe all of that if you spend a lot of time in it. It's just unprofitable and worthless. Now, I put in your outline, refusing to debate people who want to argue about what is clear, and then second category is not important. What do I mean by that, or what do I really think the intent of the Apostle Paul is in terms of this passage? Is there, there ought to be a lot of things that we have settled in saying, this is true, and this is clear, and if people are going to argue about it, I'm not going to waste my time arguing about it. Now, for people who don't know the Lord, if they're, if they're struggling with who is Jesus, we, we want to we reason with them about who Jesus is, that he truly is who he claimed to be. He is God in the flesh and, and give rationale like the resurrection to, to really give evidence that this is true. But, but a person who might be involved in the church for any length of period of time and, and they want to they debate the deity of Jesus, we're saying, no, that, that's settled here. We're not going to spend time arguing about what is clear. Now, often people won't do that in a church, but they might want to argue, well, I don't believe in heaven, or I don't believe in hell. Let's say hell. Well, uh, it's one thing to talk about it initially, but if, if they're going to keep arguing what, the, what, what Jesus spoke about more often than he spoke about the other place, we're not going to argue about that. Now, I, I would just assume there wasn't a hell, but that, I, I'm not the author of this book. The Bible is clear. There's a place of judgment for those who reject the offer of forgiveness. And so we're not going to argue about that. And, and then foolish genealogy, genealogy since, since uh, Gary left something out in his first talk, I'll, I'll, and I left something out in my first talk, then I'll, I'll add this as well. There's some people I really respect and really appreciate it about a lot of their ministry, but there are people who look at this book and, and they, they believe there's a Bible code. 
There, there's this, you know, you take the letters of, of people's names and you put, put them together and patch them together and you got this, these hidden meanings in, in, in the Word of God. And, and it's based on genealogies. I don't have the time to go, but in genealogy chapter 5, they have this, the gospel discovered in the names of the people in the genealogy. You know what that is? That's a waste of time. The Bible wrote this for us to understand what's on the surface, not be, not be below the surface. One of my favorite comments, you know, Mark Twain. It's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bothers me or challenge me. It's the things I do understand. And it sounds sometimes really spiritual or deep when people find something that no one else has seen. But that's just foolishness. It's worthless to spend time doing that. Don't spend time arguing about what's not there. And so he goes on, don't be caught up in things that are just arguing about things that, that really keep you off what is really most important, and that's Jesus. And so really, what should we spend time discussing or arguing uh, about or debating in terms of understanding? It's, it's what is fundamental and what is not fundamental. Well, what is fundamental? What is fundamental, and that's what the the charge to the elders is bringing people up in, in sound doctrine, things that are true, obviously, in the text, and, and, and we've, we've got to come to conviction here. In John 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. But I really like, and it's so appropriate for this, Christ, this Christmas season, this Easter season, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, But I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is, this is the foundation of our message. And the farther you get away from discussion about Jesus, you've got to be careful or you're talking about things that, that might go beyond what's most important. Everything in the Bible is important. And, and we ought to spend all kinds of time trying to understand everything that's in this book. But if, if, if discussions are divisive and getting people off Jesus, you're going down the wrong track. You're not dealing with what isn't fundamental. And then secondly is, is understanding what is not fundamental. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, look, at, you know, there are people who, who want to somehow dictate what, what you eat or drink. In other words, your diet. This is the more spiritual way to eat. Now, it might be a healthier way for you to eat, but it's not a more spiritual way to eat. The Bible has made all food clean. Some people go to straight lengths. Well, you know what? You, ought to, you, know, you should only worship on the Sabbath. Now, in, according to the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath is what day? Saturday. And Paul is very plain in Romans 14. Look, if you want to worship on another day, fine. But God has ordained any day to worship him. And we could go on and on about that. And, and, and take Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Um, you know, Gary mentioned Lent. And there's nothing wrong with Lent, but, you know, Lent is not in the Bible. And often I'll have people say, well, how come you don't observe Lent at the church? Well, I have nothing against anybody deciding for a period of time they want to give up something because they want to be more devoted to Jesus. But it's not in the Bible. And actually, if you decide to do it during this period of time every year, that's great as well. But if you were to take the sense of Scripture, is just don't tell anybody about it. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, look, at, and Jesus got criticized for his, uh, his people, not his people, you know. Those are, these, this is my people and those are your people. He said, your, your, people aren't, your, your people aren't fasting. And fasting is a sign of spirituality. And, and he said, look it, if you're going to fast, just don't tell anybody. 
In fact, if you don't use words, like, you know, Gary and Kelly, they couldn't use words together. But if I wanted to show how much I was suffering, right, you know, I, I would look really sick and I'd stumble and say, what is it? I'm giving up food for Jesus, right? He says, don't, don't tell me. If you're going to give up food because you want to spend more time to pray or you want to focus on things, that's fine. But you don't have to tell anything about it. You understand what I'm saying? And so what people will do, they'll elevate certain things and they'll say, well, this is really spirituality based on what you give up or what you, what you incorporate in your life that, that shows your devotion in a grander way. And you know what Jesus would say, look, if you want to show your devotion to me, then obey my commandments. Love other people. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. Show, show and share the love of Christ to others. Now, if you have a means which works for you, fine. But if it's not clear in the Scripture, don't be adding this to other people. Now, may, some of you might think, well, I don't ever get in conversations like that. Well, I'll introduce you to some people, all right? <laughs> there are people who go down that path. And Paul was saying to them at that church, just, just avoid that. Refuse to get caught up in that. Take what God says plainly and follow it out. Avoid those kind of discussions. But he doesn't move on. He moves on from refusing or avoiding those kind of discussions. And then he, then he heightens it. He says, okay, one thing is to avoid or refuse. And some translation would say shun in verse 9. Then he goes on and says, uh, you ought to be rejecting. What should you be rejecting? Verse 10 says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. The word factious is an interesting word in the original language. The word factious comes from a word which we get heretic. It really initially meant to, to make, be making certain choices, choices going down the wrong path. But, but we would call people who, who take that which is fundamentally true in the Scripture, essential for us to know who the true God is and to follow Him. And some people get, they get heretical about that. And he says, reject those kind of discussions with people. Now, you don't just let them go off. You warn them, say, well, you're going down the wrong path, and you might warn them a first time and a second time. But if they continue, then you need to know that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, I was sharing the first service that I was, confession is good for the soul, right? And so I was, I was being very open. I said, you know, I'm talking about there's certain people we ought to refuse to argue with and have great debate with. Refuse to listen if they want to debate with us, even though we don't want to debate with them. Now, for some of us, people like me, that, that's a hard pill to swallow because I think arguing is a sport, all right? I, I think, that, you know, I, I like to engage in a, in a, in a debate, in a discussion, and, and every time I argue, I'm always convinced I'm going to what? Why, why are you guys so quick to respond to that? Fill in the blank. Okay. You know, I, I think I'm going to win every argument I'm ever in. Okay. But that's not the point. The point is not to win the argument. It's to, to win the war, right? And sometimes when we allow people to continue to discuss that which they're convinced is true, we're almost submitting the truth in their life. And say, look, I, we're, this is a settled issue. I'm not going to argue with this anymore. Now, when do you know when a person's come to that place? And, and let me tell you, I have, I have been on both ends of this in terms of calling it too soon or calling it too late. But, but if you're honest, if you ever step back in a discussion and, and you realize 
in this discussion or debate or argument. And those aren't dirty words in scriptures. There are good arguments. There are good debates. There's good discussions. But when you get to that point when you're talking with someone and you realize that as you're speaking, they're not thinking. And as they're speaking, you're not thinking. And you're, you're, not, you're not wrestling with what they have to say. And all you're doing is trying to focus what's the next thing you're going to say. Right? Now, if a person is still on the point and say, I'm, I'm truly trying to understand this. I'm trying to get it right. I'm trying to, I'm, I really want to know the truth. I want to pursue the truth. Then continue to discuss and argue and debate. But once it reaches a certain level where, you know, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the what? The facts. Then you are more loving to them. You're treating them better when you refuse to get in those kind of arguments. Does that make sense? Now, I think we ought to be able to discuss Jesus at any time without people feeling overwhelmed by us imposing upon them. Just like politics. You ought to be able to talk politics in a way that's engaging rather than, than, than uh, you know, alarming. But there even comes to those point when, when that person's mind is made up, there's no sense keep going over you know, scorched ground until that person is open again. And the same thing for you as well. Does that make sense? But then the good news comes in. We ought to, we ought to be, oh, by the way, uh, rejecting people who have been warned but continue to stretch strife by how they live and what they believe. Some people are believers and some people are not believers in this category. So even if a person is a believer and, and they're going down that path, you, you need to take a step back. And the same thing with a, a non-believer. There are times where more discussion is not going to be helpful. But then he concludes this part, and he talks about, okay, let, let, me, let me turn a positive note on. And he talks about people that we ought, shouldn't be refusing or rejecting, but we ought to be refreshing. Look at Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. It's interesting, some write on this is that uh, Titus, who was uh, the pastor over a number of churches, or he was the one that other pastors would come to for uh, um, instruction, that that wasn't going to be a long-term ministry for for Titus. He was going to be a missionary in Crete for a while, but he's going to go on to another location. Um, And he was going to send a couple people to him, Artemis and Tychicus. Now, I was sharing a little bit in the first service. You know, when we get to heaven, some of us are going to be embarrassed. In fact, let's just say all of us are going to be embarrassed because there are going to be people up there that we should know a little about, and the reality is most of us don't know anything about. In fact, we didn't even know we should know about them because we haven't been paying attention. Now, how many have been dreaming about Artemis and meeting him in heaven? All right. Okay, and when we meet, he said, look, how come you don't know my name? I was written in the book. Where's your name here? Okay. Well, you don't feel too bad about Artemis because that's the only thing we know about him is that he's written in Titus. He, he was a companion of the Apostle Paul and he was valued, which is a devotional thought thinking this way. You can be very, very important in God's kingdom and nobody know about it. Isn't that good news? I mean, there are people in the Bible that are named here and we don't know anything about them, but we know they were important. And there would be people who are not in the Bible that weren't even written in there and they were important as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, you know, the, things you think, the people you think are most important, they're probably not as important as you think. And the people you think are not important, they really are important. 
just like your body, right? I don't think too much about my spleen and, and um, my, my pancreas. I, I, never, I never really worry about them too much um, until the doctor says something's wrong with them. But they're a lot more important than the things I do look at a lot. And, and, and so this was true about Artemis. And Tychicus, he was, he was a, a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he was sending a letter to Colossae uh, through the, the Paul's uh, admonition, and he was a support to him in so many different ways. He was probably there with him in Corinth. Uh, and, and he said, look, at it. I, I'm going to send them, and, and when they come, make every, every effort to come see me at Nicopolis, which is a, a city of victory. For I've decided to spend the winter there, which is kind of a neat thing there, is that the Apostle Paul, even the Apostle Paul had to go on furlough for a while, right? He, he needed a break. He's probably writing this in northern Greece, and this is, he said, I'm going to go to southern Greece, and I'm, I, I need a break, and uh, ho- hope we can, we can pick up there. Um, now, I'm not a, I've been to Greece, but I'm not that familiar with its, its climate um, maybe he was a, um, a, uh, a snowbird or a winter bird or something like that. So he, he wanted to go to, during the winter months, he wanted to go down to the south. Maybe it was going to be a little bit warmer. But then he says this in verse 13, diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on the way so that nothing is lacking for them. Again, this is kind of the interesting part of Scripture. We go, we're talking about people we never really talk about at all, Zenus. And uh, the only thing remarkable that we know about Zenus is that he was a what? A lawyer. Now, normally just thinking about lawyers, um, you know, they aren't very trustworthy. They're all ambulance chasers. You know, we can't, you know, no. Normally we just make jokes about lawyers because two of them are sitting right over here and there were two over here in the first service. Okay, but you know, in the Bible, the, the lawyer, there are lawyers that were good lawyers and one of them was Zenus. And, and he said, look at you, you see Zenus, man, I want you diligently to do whatever you can for them. He is a valued part of my, my troop that's doing things for Christ. And we don't know whether he was Jewish or, or a Roman. He had a Roman name, but he could have been a, a Jewish scribe that uh, was, a, was an expert in the Jewish law, or it could have been a Roman that was, uh, uh, who, who was involved in litigating in that particular arena. But whatever his job was, he was, he was important to Paul. And Paulus was probably the preacher that is, is somewhat well-known in the New Testament. And he said, when you're with them, make sure they're lacking for nothing. Now, again, all I'm trying to say here, and I don't know if I've even stated the points here, is that in refreshing people, we ought to be refreshing people who have tirelessly helped others and now are in need of help. And so he names them by name. And he also said, look, this is not just for you, Titus. In other words, it shouldn't be just on the job description of a pastor to help other pastors, if you were to take this kind of in a simple way. He says in, in verse 14, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so they will not be fruitful, unfruitful. Which is a, just a colorful way of the Apostle Paul saying, look at all of us need to be part of that group of people that see people who have needs and how can we meet need, their needs. And when we are, then we're not unfruitful. And then he ends up with a greeting. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Greet, grace be with you all. Turn your Bibles real quickly to Romans, and then we'll conclude with this. You know, there are people that we need to recognize that we refuse to get caught up in some of the 
discussions they want to get caught up in that are just worthless. It's a waste of time to try to persuade people who just, you know, they're, they're just looking for another argument. We ought to even reject people who are causing division among God's people and say, look at this. We're drawing the line here. This is, this is no longer to be debated here and causing strife here. But the focus we all should have on is who are the people in our lives that need refreshing? And, and instead of looking around and saying, well, who else is going to refresh them? We ought to say, well, maybe I should refresh them. In Romans 15, I'm always, I'm always marked that the Apostle Paul ever needed anything. But the reality is he did. And he, w- he was willing to share that in a public way and put it in, even in print. Romans 15, verse 30 says this, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me. Now, I, I need you help. I need you to be on my team. And, and in what way? With me in your prayers to God. Well, okay, so you want me praying for the things you're praying about. Well, what are you praying about? He says, Striving together with me in your prayers to God for me. He said, look, I need you to pray for me. And then he goes on and says that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. I got enemies that my service in Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. And then in verse 32, he puts it this way. So I got enemies. That's why you need to pray for me and I need help. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest and Inserted in the New American Standard is the implied refreshing rest in your company. What is Paul saying? You know, who needs to be refreshed? Sometimes the people we think that they're so spiritual they never need to, to take a break or to be refreshed or have rest. He said Paul needed refreshment. And he really wasn't looking for anything financial. He said, I just need to be with you. And when I'm with you, I'm going to be refreshed. Uh, We won't read it, but in Romans 16, 1 through 4, we have the same idea there where he lists people that are serving, not him, now others. And and, and you can expand this. Who needs to be refreshing? Well, the heroes of the faith need refreshing. Paul needed it. Or anybody that you look up to. But everyone needs it. And then he lists them. Now, how can that be done? Well, you know, obviously we could, we could spend a lot of time on that, but let, let me just describe it this way. Do, do you know people that when, when you see them coming, you're, it, just, it just lifts your spirit? I mean, they're just, they're just people that, that, that you are just excited about. That they, they bring you joy just by being who they are. And, and you just feel privileged to spend time with them. And that's how Paul looked at it. Look, I need you in my life. Why don't you pray for me? And that's how we can refresh people from a distance. When Gary and Kelly take off, that's about what we're going to be able to do is pray for them in their refreshment. I mean, we can exchange letters and things like that, but, but we aren't going to be in their physical presence. But when, when we have the ability to be with people, let's be people that are refreshing to others. They're glad we're around. Now, now of course, the challenge is, is not only do we have people in our lives who do that for us, are we the kind of people who do that in the lives of others? Or maybe the more sobering thing is, are we the, we the kind of people that bring joy to others? 
Or are they the, are we the kind of people sometimes are saying, oh, no. <laughs> you know, are, are we what's called the EGR people? You know what EGR people? Extra grace required people? <laughs> now, let's be honest. We all know people that are EGR, right? I mean, for whatever reason, they are just, they're just difficult people. And, and, and so there the ministry is, is graciousness and mercy and support. But we need people in our lives that are refreshing of us, that lift up our spirits. And we need to be the kind of people that we are refreshing to others that they're glad we're in that midst. So as we think of the life of the church, the life of the church is, is to do good because God is good. And we need to get our leadership right. We need to get God's people right in the church. We need to get God's people right in the community. And we need to be people who do good by knowing what is not good for people. Allowing them to have a platform to keep on bringing people down. There needs to be a line drawn. Refuse and reject those things that disrupt and destroy. But on the other hand, we need to see the privilege we have to be people who refresh others. And their spirits are lifted up and they're encouraged to keep on keeping on because they really see the the joy of the Lord and they see the Lord in us because of our love of the Lord and his love that throws out through us to others. So, So what this morning is very simple. How are you treating others? Are you treating others in a way what is best for them? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as we think about where it all begins. It all begins when we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And it's a step of faith where we recognize our need and our sin, realize that Jesus paid the price for our sin, and then we commit to follow him as Lord, God, and Savior in our lives. And then, Father, then, then there's the journey and the challenge to live it out in such a way that God can see it and people can see that in us and that we can show that in tangible ways to others. Help us to be your people in ways that make a difference. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.